Hey, welcome to the CMO Whisper Show. I'm your host, Steve Olensky. Part marketing practitioner, part ad agency veteran, part journalist. I was a writer for Forbes for 10 years. I've had so many insightful conversations over the years with business leaders, to athletes, to celebrities, to, of course, CMOs. The only difference now is instead of sharing those insights through written form, I'm doing it this way. My guest this week is Dawn Hudson. From CEO to CMO to chairman of the board, her career has spanned high-level posts in media, retail, consumer goods, and on and on and on at brands like the NFL, Pepsi, Lowe's, P.F. Chang's, NVIDIA, the LPGA, and I could keep going, but I'm going to stop and say, here's my conversation with the absolutely incredible Dawn Hudson. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. I wish we could talk the whole time about my Eagles and get your thoughts, but I don't think my listeners would care. Oh, some of them would care. Some of them care a lot. Some being fans and some being absolutely against you. Yeah. They're a polarizing team. That's true. We're a polarizing city, right? That's a whole other story. But I, I really, really want to get into really, there's so much to talk to you about. I'm not even sure where to begin, but I'm going to start at a very high level. How's marketing changed over the past 20 plus years? You know, it's been really fascinating for me to watch somebody who sort of grew up in, in a classic profession that was relatively simple. You had create a brand and you had to make the packaging for it and figure out the pricing. And then you had to advertise it and you had, you know, make the big choice. I'm going to date myself between television, radio, print, magazines, outdoor and it was still a great industry. It was a, a way to use your smarts and also combine your creativity. And a lot of the fundamentals of what I grew up with and what makes for a great marketer are the same today. However, the tools and the way you deploy a brand and the way you get promotional activity or you get people to fall in love with you is quite more varied and different and the skill sets are different. And so obviously you have, you know, the majority of advertising spend today is online. The number of retail outlets and then the online presence results in, you know, a more complicated pricing strategy, depending upon how you're going to balance your different outlets. That leads to different promotional strategies based on the outlets. And again, from a marketing standpoint, or really a blending of many different media, still including some sports, I'm happy to say, and some traditional television with digital, with events, and the opportunity for really authentic interaction at a local level. But what that has meant is that it's a more analytical, data-driven job. It still has got the creativity. It still has to have the insight into the consumer but a whole lot more data analytics to get the most for your dollar and the ability to track what works and what doesn't. 20 years ago, there was an expression everyone used, and, and you may remember it, which is, I know my, my, my marketing is working, and I know my advertising is working. I just don't know which half. Well, today, you know exactly what's working and exactly what you get a click on and what, what gets you a fan and what gets you a sale. So, and the future is going to go, you know, with the advent of uh, AI and generative AI, even, even more in that direction. But the fundamentals of, I still have to have a brand that people respond to, you know, rationally and emotionally, and I've got to tell them about it. 
and I've got to do it in a consistent way. No matter where it shows up, it reinforces what makes my brand different from the competition and why you should choose it over the competition. Those fundamentals are the same. Yeah, it's interesting. And and you mentioned AI, and we will certainly get into that in a second. But I want to ask you, over the past month, I've had, I think it was two or even three CMOs of big brands. Now, I won't say the brands, but they've come to me and tell me basically or ask for my help. And they've been challenged with proving the value of marketing to their board. And these are very, very seasoned CMOs, right? At big brands. And when they brought it to my, you know, doorstep, if you will, I was first shocked saying, what year is this? Like that we're still doing this. We still have to show and prove the value. And when I say value, and I both know that means the ROI, right? And that those metrics, those quantifiable metrics that the CFOs and the CEOs of the world only care about, right? They don't care about how many lakes you got. How is that... One, are you surprised that marketing and marketers are still being challenged to show the value of marketing? I am totally not surprised. And I love this question because I think it is, it's endemic about the struggle going on with the profession around the role of the one-on-one marketing and the analytics to track that interaction with the holistic building of a brand. And I think today, if you were in the cable business, if you were in Netflix business, you're thinking about the cost of user acquisition. And your CFO wants to make sure that we're getting as low a cost of acquisition as we can, and we have the ability to track that better than ever. But the fact that you might be spending hundreds, tens of hundreds of millions of dollars to get acquisition, to get interaction and clicks with users, to send people to a website, yeah, how many purchases, you know, in the end, you'll get some quantification of a portion of your budget. Yes, I I drove sales, literal, I clicked and somebody bought. And over here, I drove somebody into my system. But in the end, value is created by brands that are differentiated from other brands. And it drives stock prices incredibly. And stock prices are not driven by the fact that you got your user acquisition down by 10 cents a user. They're driven by the fact that people want to buy the Nike basketball shoe more than Converse or Adidas, even though the technology might be similar. And that is the harder part to quantify. But if I were a CMO asking you that question, my advice to them would be go high before they get into all of their digital clicks and their analysis. I'd go to the big picture. I'd go to making sure you've got studies that show why people affiliate with your brand, what value they give to it, the reason that they're willing to pay a few more dollars for it because it's different from the others in the category. And I would be at that high a level before I dove in a lot of data analytics because it's the single biggest thing that drives stock price is people choose me over that on a rational and emotional basis. I'm chuckling because... What you said is so simplistic, not to make it sound that it's easy, but it it is so, and maybe we as marketers view the world differently. I know we do, right? But just listening to you, it's it's no more complicated than what you just said. So if if I were uh, going to Roger at the NFL today, I can look at how many uh, NFL fans are in our ecosystem and how many can I get them to buy at the NFL shop and how many are buying tickets and how many are signing up for NFL Plus very good metrics. And I can show them how marketing is contributing to those numbers. 
But in the end, I like to think about sports in terms of what are the sports that people are so passionate about that it is it is the old appointment TV, <laughs> but it, it is that they prioritize that over most things in their life. And there are surveys today among the millennial generation and among Gen Z that look at what are your favorite three sports. And if you look at what are the three sports for all ages, you get football right up at the top. If you look at the top sports for all ages of 40 plus, you get football. But you start looking at it under 40 and you start teasing it out, you see that actually the NBA, some extreme sports, esports are starting to, to come up on that list and challenge. That's the brand and the affinity of the brand. And I'd be really focusing on how am I going to make sure that that's alive and well 20 years from now, despite the fact that my TV numbers are up, despite the fact that I was able to run my sport during COVID and I attracted more eyeballs, I'd be looking down the road. And that's hard to do, honestly, when you're trying to to wrangle 32 owners and trying to figure out how to make this season work and how to deliver the financials. But I think as a brand person, it's really important to make sure that you're contributing to the long-term success of a brand. And if I get back to the question of the CMO and the board, the board is interested in long-term stock price, multiple expansion, the belief the street does not reward. How much do you know that after one quarter of phenomenal earnings, NVIDIA knows this, the stock trades the next day, it reacts, and then what next? What's next? The street wants to know that a brand and a business has a robust pipeline of innovation and new targets and things they're going to go after to drive growth for the next one to five years. And that that is what a chief marketing officer should do, both, both on the brand reputational side, but also on the innovation side. Yeah. And it is really having that one eye here, one eye there kind of thing. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm so great. Such an interesting conversation. I'm sorry to uh, speak over you. So finish your question. No, no, no. I knew we were going to have <laughs> these sidebars because it's just, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. And yes, I'm already envisioning a part two down the road and we haven't even finished part one. <laughs> so back to AI or what I call the elephant in every marketer's room, right? And the juxtapose over what you talked about earlier about how marketing has changed over the past 20 years. But now let's look at it through the lens of the opportunities within marketing. With now that elephant, very big elephant that's coming, an AI, and from your perspective, how do you see opportunities within marketing and what role AI may or may not play? I heard a senior vice president of AI for Microsoft speak two weeks ago. And when asked the question of, in the whole world of commerce and business, where are the first places you're going to see significant application of AI? And I are today, and importantly, we'll see generative AI. Number one, sales and marketing. And you can go on to others, but I just think it's going to so influence and you get back to that CFO question, it's going to make a marketing dollar potentially, it's going to make your marketing more efficient. So I think everybody is saying, oh, AI has great application in sales and marketing and you're the CMO and you you didn't grow up as an engineer and you're not a software engineer and you may not serve on the board of NVIDIA. You sort of say, wow, what should I do with this? And, and who do I turn to? And, you know, I'm on the board of a large uh, advertising agency conglomerate, but I would say they're not, they're not getting the calls. They're the people that mind the brand and buy the media very efficiently. 
but they're not necessarily the experts in technology application to marketing. So I think you're seeing some of the consulting firms step into that space. I think Accenture and, and Deloitte are, are growing quite a bit. You see people reaching out to uh, Google and Microsoft and some of the people that are in technology uh, for their points of view. But this has got to be, after after what's the return on investment, this has got to be the number one question the, the board and the uh, CEO is asking of the CMO, what is the application of AI? And and I think, you know, right away, you're going to say, I'm already using AI, right? I'm already, I'm already using it if I'm a retailer and I've got a website and, I, and I'm offering what people buy and what message shows up, you're, you're already using AI. Generative AI can take it to a smarter level. But I think that, you know, AI thus far is, let's talk about it as to the degree over the last 20 years, marketing has gotten more analytical in terms of an individual who opts in married with what's the right product or message to give them. Now it's going to be done much more. It is being done much more effectively, better than the brain can do it, a human brain, to get that match right. Now, the next phase, I think, is going to be the integration of the messaging customized to the person. Today, it's not affordable to take a message, whether it's a line in, you know, AB line in a in an email, or whether it is a picture you're going to put out on Instagram and customize it to the audience. So just, there aren't that many variations and you can't pay for that many to be done, but AI can. And right now there's some interesting NVIDIA's working with someone in the industry to really develop that software and that tool. And now I'm going to spring to my other point of view. That's that software and tool is only as good as who is inputting. What is the brand? How should the brand show up? And therefore, that you're building a consistent brand at the same time you're app, you're, you're uh, applying AI to do your marketing more cost effectively and more tar- even more targeted than today. What we think of as targeted today is going to look like 20 years ago in five years' time. Yeah, if not less time. And you bring up a great point about someone, uh, I forget who said it to me, because they get asked about employment and will jobs go down in marketing because of AI? And he said, look, the answer I give people is you're not going to lose your job. The people who are going to lose your job are the ones who don't know how to use the tool, right? And that's basically what just speaks to what you just said about who inputs what the brand is, what it stands for, and all those things, and who best utilizes whatever AI tool they have at their disposal. To that point, if I were advising a CMO or, or somebody, a, a VP of marketing, I'd say go learn everything you can. Go learn what your agency is offering you. Go learn what your consulting firm's offering you. Go learn what your media partners are offering you. Just absorb as much as you can to figure out with your knowledge of your business and how it works, which is the best way to apply it for you because it will not be one size fits all. So well put. I could not agree more. Do you have any fear? And I I brought this up yesterday to somebody that I won't look at the world at large. I'll keep it to the context of our world of marketing. Do you have any fear that marketers will get too reliant on AI and we will lose that human side of marketing? I have a fear that that's happening right now with the data orientation of marketing. And I believe with AI, that's only going to accelerate. And Again, not to make it simplistic, but brands are orchestras where all the instruments feed in to give you one sound and one percussion. And for marketing, all the inputs, whether it's your social presence, 
your programmatic buying, your email, your blasts, your influencers. Influencers is a whole other topic, but they have to be reinforcing what makes your brand different and and attracts people to your brand. They are very capable of just doing what in the moment will get a sale or is interesting. And I'm going to give you an example of that that I just, just learned about. And, and I also worry, and you and I have talked about this, Steve, I worry that people are now coming into marketing through very detailed, more specialized jobs. I know the influencer market. I know social media. I'm a programmatic buyer. I develop digital ads for the programmatic buying. And they're all specialized but somehow you have to, as an individual, continue to build up your DNA, your learning, so that you're, you are going back to me to the simple fundamentals. What does your brand stand for? What makes it different? And where are the new, who are your current users? And what are the new audiences you want to have? And somehow people have to keep that umbrella view, that top of the mountain, and make sure everything goes to driving that sphere because that's what drives value. And as the world and marketing has gotten more complicated, it's easy to get your career lost in it, where you become a real specialist in one, one element of it. That's only going to you know, continue and enhance with AI. And yet, what, what do boards want? They want brands that are more differentiated, innovation that works, that drives sales. And that tends to be the big ideas through which these tools are used to efficiently execute but we have people being coming up in marketing as executors and not learning the skill of strategy and vision. It's a really interesting point about kind of the Swiss army knife, right? Which is what you're basically saying to make yourself as valuable as possible, which I know kind of sounds like a cliche, but I think it's even more exacerbated now with AI. And in a year or two when, when I is AI isn't everything. I mean, again, I think we've got AI and pretty embedded in the business from a from a media delivery standpoint. Wait till it gets embedded in the business from creating content. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. And those who are doing something about it now will be better off tomorrow. So what if you create an AI that takes the best of influencers and the best of social, jumbles them up, creates more content and shoots it out? Sometimes people get reaction and clicks and a lot of people notice them because they say something out there something challenging, something provocative. Who's going to see whether it's good to associate that with your brand or not? But if something's being driven by eyeballs and getting reaction, that could happen. I just thought of something too. You mentioned agencies and how, and I think you said, correct me if I'm wrong, that agencies aren't really on the forefront of AI or do they need to be, or when it comes to the brand, right? That's, that's, the onus is on the brand itself and the marketers within the brand. But I have to share this quick anecdote with you. A, a CMO of a, of a Fortune 500 company was telling me she put an RFP out recently and she had, I think, five agencies. And three of them basically had the exact same pitch. And she surmised, if not found out on her own, that they literally put in a chat GPT, how do I present to brand X? And it blew my mind. And when she got to the third of these three, it was so obvious. There was no originality, nothing. They literally copy-pasted from ChatGPT or whatever tool they used for a pitch. See, this is to me, you as, as a marketer, I believe part of my job is originality and creativity. 
to drive the business, not just to be creative for creative sake, but to look for opportunities to do things that people really respond to. And I expect my agency to be my biggest partner in that. And to do that, there has to be originality. There has to be understanding of the brand. There has to be some unique thought. And it's scary that that could happen. I'm um, chairman of a company, packaged goods company. And just as a hoot, a marketer on a Friday night was going to put up an ad uh, for a skincare product. And they asked chat GBT, what what would get me the best reaction ever uh, for my skincare ad this Friday night? And they said, put a puppy in the ad. So somehow they created a skincare ad with a puppy in it. And it was, in fact, the biggest reaction they got ever for Friday night. All right. Now, now let's just blow that out. What about every Friday night there's going to be puppies? And maybe Monday nights it should be babies. All right. So now this skincare brand, which was founded by two dermatologists as something that really works versus there's a lot of potions out there. What are you going to think about it really works with a lot of puppies and babies around? I don't know. AI going to answer that question? Actually, it might if somebody asks AI the right question, but it's about what is being programmed or what's being asked of the technology. It's you get out what you put in, right? So I want to pivot a little here into, and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm coming at this from a, because there's only X number of professional sports leagues, right? The majority of CMOs, marketers listening to this are not affiliated with the professional sports team early because there's just not that many. They may like to be, right? So the first question I have is, and I'm going to ask on behalf of all those other non-sports CMOs, compare and contrast, right? Because I know you have experience with the Pepsis of the world and and other non-sports teams, right? What it's like to be the CMO, especially of the NFL, which very infamously in that movie owned a day of the week. If I'm a CMO of a, of a small tech company listening to this going, Dawn has no idea what I'm trying to do. She, she can't relate. I, I can't learn anything from her. Right. What do you say to that when it comes to your background, your experience, and then how what you did and what you've accomplished and what you can teach versus the non-sports CMOs? Hopefully I'm, that makes any sense. So you're asking me to compare and contrast a sports job with a, a traditional retail packaged goods? Yeah, like a CPG brand. Yeah, because that could be very different than, a, than being a technology CMO. But you're right. Let's let's look at it from. Let's use a CPG brand. Yeah, yeah. What do I learn from CPG? Uh, by the way, one of the reasons they asked me to come into sports is because I would have an outside in, and I would bring new ways of looking at things into sports when Roger Goodell asked me to be uh, the chief marketing officer for the NFL. And that's what was really interesting to me. But let's, first of all, I just have to say, I mean, how much fun it is to work for the NFL and for a sports team. If it fuels your personal passion, that's why so many people want to be in sports. And it's frankly why you earn less money if you have a career in sports than elsewhere, because they're sort of trading on the fact that you, you love it. But secondly, I guess I'd like to, so anyway, love sports. I think that sports could benefit from some of the traditional, who am I winning with today? Who do I want to bring in? How do I bring them in? What kind of product, digital, uh, experiential do I need to create for those fans? You know, it's, it's kind of the building blocks that you learn in CPG then applied within a sports arena. But the biggest difference to me between CPG 
and sports. And I tell this when people say to me, I love sports. I want to go to a career in sports. And I tell them, go work in sports. It's really fun. But before you do, go to a more traditional company where marketing and revenue growth are seen to be linked to marketing. You want to be in a department where the CEO says, I depend on this apartment to grow my revenue and to drive my stock price. And at CPG, retail, even the Nikes of the world, that's really critical. Innovation, marketing, launch of new products, building of a brand differentiated from products that are very similar. Those things really matter in CPG. When you go over to sports, sports is so much about the personalities, who's drafted on the team, what media deals they do to reach how many people. And marketing is viewed as important, but it's not in the driver's seat the way media deals are. The other thing about sports, whether it's a team or it's a league, is that they're not generally publicly traded and they tend to have owners and management that aren't in it looking at it for the next 10 years. They're looking at it I paid $6 billion for this team. How am I going to get a return on this? And what does it look like for the next three years? So when you start talking about something that should be done to reach the next generation that'll pay off 10 years from now, that's a hard conversation to have at a sports team. Pretty easy conversation, honestly, to have uh, at CPG, where there's more of the, of the market, the analysts, the board are looking to Are we going to, what's our success pattern going to look like three to five years from now? So, you know, we, we would do at Pepsi and at Lowe's and many other places, we would do three and five year strategy plans of what we needed for marketing. Where was the innovation coming? What audiences we were going to attack? And, and we did them every year. So they, they evolved. They weren't like set in stone and you're going to do this for five years, but that conversation doesn't happen in sports. Interesting. Very interesting. I want to, looking at time here, I want to make sure, I ha- I want to ask you about the book. And I'm going to repeat the title, You Should Smile More, How to Dismantle Gender Bias in the Workplace. My first question, because I want, and this is maybe the obvious question, how to dismantle gender bias in the workplace? How, how, how do you do that? I think I should talk about, this was a book written, this is a COVID book, right? So just before COVID, Adweek asked a few of us who were, I date myself, I mean, like trailblazers and women getting into executive leadership positions in marketing and corporations. If we would come and, you know, Adweek does a a week-long set of seminars around the city for people that are interested in marketing and advertising. And so they asked us to do a panel. And we decided to do the panel on, um, and they wanted to be very, you know, interactive with the audience. And it was at a point where there was a lot of movies and everything written about Me Too. And if you will, bias and sex discrimination was interpreted as offenses uh, and, you know, that lead to overhauls of corporations. Yet in our experience, what made us happy or not happy was about the culture that was driven at the organization at all levels of an organization that made us feel valued, respected, able to be ourselves at work, and that that was being lost in the conversation that all of the focus on, on the Me Too movement, not to even in any way say that it wasn't really important, but it was overshadowing the culture and specifically the culture for women and for, for people of diversity and any kind of different background. Anybody who's like not different 
And by the way, there, I'm sure there's some companies where men would fit into that, where it's largely a female universe, so they don't feel comfortable. So it's just about differences. So at this seminar, we, we talked about that and we picked out, I don't know, 10 circumstances we all found ourselves in. And in each, each circumstance, like you're in a meeting, you say something, this often happens to women and happened to me last week in a board meeting. And then somebody could be a man often in the case of a woman says the same thing you said and everybody jumps on like it's the greatest idea in the world. And so we talked about how do you handle that? So somebody talked about using humor. Somebody talked about, well, I just dive in and I say, you know, Mary had that great idea. I want to build on that. Uh, Just a way of acknowledgement how you could change the culture. Anyway, we got an enormous reaction in the room. And then they said, will you come and talk again on this? And, and we, are, we are a group of six women, various diversities who wrote the book, whether we're African-American or gay or you know, raised in a single family. We just look at the world differently. And what people were reacting to was what works for me to handle the tough situation doesn't necessarily work the same way for Mitzi or C. So they'll say it a different way. So we're going to take this on the road and COVID hit. So we thought, well, let's take our time. We're we're bored anyway. So let's get on a Zoom call once a week and let's just talk about other circumstances and let's develop more content in case people, when the COVID's over, it's only going to be six months, we'll be ready with more content. Well, it becomes three years and we decide we have 350 pages of ideas. Might as well write a book. Got nothing else to do. So we, we hired an outside professional writer so that we would not sound very disjointed as six people to integrate everything we had to say. And it was really written to educate leadership, to educate young men who can really help in circumstances, and to say, don't, don't be a victim. Here's some thoughts about how you can help. Because sometimes it's these things that make you feel badly or make you feel they're not intentional. People just don't realize what's going on. So I've had a lot of men of daughters read this book and said, I never knew. I had never an idea. I'm going to handle myself totally differently now. So that that was around the book. And one of the chapters or one of the situations that honestly I never experienced, but each of the other five did, was in a, in a performance review as part of, you know, what do you need to do to get better or what are your ambitions and goals? And we talk in the book a lot about how to express your ambitions and goals. But uh, people were told, well, you should smile more. I'm a smile lit, so I wasn't, I wasn't told to smile a lot. But I always tell people, when you're going to make a key point in a review, think about, would I say that to a man? Uh, you know, should, you should smile more. Or an African-American or, a, you know, African-American woman, whatever. And so, but it elicits a response, laughter by a lot of women when they say you should smile more because they've been there and they, they get it. Most men don't understand the thinking behind the name of the book. But it was just a book of us to give back and take advantage of our years of collective experience to try to help the next generation of young men and women leaders. That's why we did it. I cannot wait to get a copy. I'm the father of a daughter who's 24, and I want to read it through that lens as well. Easy to find on Amazon. I will find it, and I will order it today for sure, because it is so, it's a very, very big topic near and dear to my heart as well, and we can save that for part two. I think Me Too made it very heavy 
And I think my husband at one point said, I, I'm not sure he's retired. If I went back in corporate America, I'd be so concerned about opening my mouth. And, and what would I say? And here's somebody who's, you know, very well intentioned. So we wrote the book to be those little things, those micro moments, some call them micro congestions. We don't aggressions. We don't call them micro aggressions, but there's those little things that make people feel uncomfortable. But we try to deal with them with some humor because we think that some of this is a little levity. And sometimes some of the best ways women have of handling circumstances is actually to treat them with some levity and not a dire end of the world comments because that's not what people intended. You're speaking my language there. So I look for humor in pretty much everything I do. So you're definitely speaking my language. Looking back on your career, I'm going to put you on the spot again. Has one person had the biggest impact? I get in trouble when I answer this question. I have to say, I think my father. My father grew up as one of four boys, three of whom played semi-professional baseball. And my grandfather played for the farm team that became the Baltimore Orioles. So big, big athletic sports family. And my father has three girls. And at a time when parenting was a little different than it is today, but he raised me like a son. I mean, he didn't like dress me in dungarees and stuff. I mean, he recognized I was a girl, but he, he took me to third base behind Frank Robinson and, uh, when the Orioles were in town to play the Red Sox. He helped me with my history. He read things. He exposed me to things. He brought me into his law office, had lunch. He raised me in a way that said anything's possible. And I get in trouble with my mother when I say this because my mother who is extremely capable. She's, you know, one of those women they had make movies about who was one of the first coders coming out of Wellesley College to do computer coding. But she made a choice. She did not make a choice. But when she got pregnant with me, she was required to stop working. She was not allowed to be pregnant and work. You could be pregnant up to about five or six months. After that, you look bad for the workplace. So she was out. And then both of my sisters that followed me had medical issues. And so her life became really focused on, you know, very importance of raising the girls and, and keeping my sisters healthy. So my father played a bigger role. That said, when my father died early at 54 of a heart attack, my mother went back into the workforce and became, you know, she was young. She had, my sister was 10 at home. She had to learn how to manage her money to get along for the future. She became actually worked for a bank as an investment advisor for other, other widows. And she had, she had it on, started a career at 50, ended up having a very good career for the next 18 years of her life, uh, 20 years of her life. And today she still knows a lot. So I, I, I lean on her. But when I go back to how I was raised, what was different at the time is how my father treated me equally. And I think it had an impact. The, the second impact would be to me, and I didn't plan it this way, but when you go to a college that's 10% women, I went to Dartmouth College, you then end up working for Pepsi when the whole bottling system is 99 male owners and one female owner. And then you go to the NFL. They have, all have more women than you think, but still there's a, there's a theme to my career, which is I've been put myself in situations where I am a minority and I've learned how to be part of the group and how to excel and be able to lead people that don't look like me. Mm. I love that. So last thing, I know people listening can't see this, but you can see it behind me is my album wall. And I'm a very big, huge music fan, very eclectic taste. And music carries a lot of weight with me. There are certain 
lyrics and songs that mean more to me for different reasons. But my number one favorite song, you just used the, one of the words from my favorite song, Lean, is a song called Lean on Me by Bill Withers. And I'm dating myself, and you know the song. I know, but but young people today follow songs from all genres. And, you know, I remember when my daughter was saying she discovered this great new group that I had to hear, hear about, Mom, and they're called the Beatles. So, you know. <laughs> no, 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 she didn't. <laughs> so my question to you is, right off the top of your head, is there a song? Is there a lyric? Is there a band? Is there a con- or something in music that resonates that you've always, when you hear the song or you hear the lyric, just has a little extra feeling for you? All right. So I love music. And like you, I, I listen to such a wide genre from contemporary to old to things that predated me. Um, I love the 40s and 50s music for occasion. But it, instead of a singular song, when there's driving music with a beat, if I'm competing, if I'm uh, getting ready for a board or a speech, it just, there's something it does for me that gives me that little extra piece of energy that puts me out in front. And it's, uh, and I can't even tell you, I, I, you know, I drive and listen to music all the time. And I know when one of the songs comes on and I should know Dire Straits or whatever, whatever it is, which of the songs, but they just, I got to be careful I don't speed uh, when these songs come on because they, they just, uh, they, they juice me. So, but I do like, I do like energetic songs more than I like lazy, put me to sleep songs. So as, as I was putting this studio together, right, and, and there's a music theme behind me, the phrase, the sound of marketing came to me. And I thought, hmm, what does marketing sound like, right? And, and I don't know if you noticed, but you, you touched on this earlier. And you said that it's like an orchestra, right? So you kind of already answered the question, but you know, I ask all my guests, what does marketing sound like to you? So sound and music is emotive. And a good brand is emotive. It feels like a friend. It feels like a, a trusted ally. And often it makes you smile. So what music does, brands do, and we talk about, in fact, people today, uh, because it's such a visual and audio world, sometimes, you know, when I grew up, we, we described brands with words. Now I think you can describe brands with visuals and sounds that capture, you know, you have a soothing brand that is designed to relax and to de-stress your life. You can see, hear the music that would be a part of that. Uh, but I, I love the music analogy, whether it's a band or an orchestra, because I do believe that music has, even electronic, has has so many different layers to it. And the art of music is how you combine things. And that, to me, is the art of marketing, how you combine things so the parts, the whole is bigger than the parts. It's that harmony. Love that word. Well, listen, I cannot thank you enough. I already know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you up for part two. <laughs> I know this is coming. I, In fact, I know we're going to do other things together. You and I talked about this before um, because we we're such kindred spirits. But thank you so much for your time today. Great. Thanks, Steve. Hope everybody has a great day. Bye-bye. 
Well, that wraps up another episode of the CMO Whisperer Show. I hope you shared this episode with your friends. And if you have not already, please subscribe to be kept up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you're so inclined, leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you. 